From the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, I'm your host, AANP President Sophia Thomas. And this is NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. Welcome to NP Pulse, AANP's new monthly podcast bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to NPs and to our patients. I'm so glad you've joined us today for the inaugural episode of NP Pulse, and I'm incredibly excited for the opportunity that this podcast provides to share the amazing wisdom and experiences that nurse practitioners bring not only to healthcare, but to everyday life. Each month, we'll be bringing you stories and in-depth conversations with nurse practitioners and healthcare leaders that you can't hear anywhere else. So be sure to subscribe to this podcast and share it with your NP colleagues. You know, lately, um, COVID-19 has really brought a new awareness for us about and an appreciation about infection control and the prevention of transmission of disease. One of the, the first things we learned when we went to nursing school was proper infection control measures and how to wash our hands. And really, that's all come to light. So amidst COVID-19 and with flu season quickly approaching, what better time to speak with two experts in the field of infectious disease? It is my pleasure to welcome nurse practitioners, Dr. Ruth Carrico and Dr. Hudson Garrett. Dr. Carrico and Dr. Garrett, welcome to NP Pulse. Thank you very much. I'd like you both to introduce yourselves and and tell our listeners a little bit more about yourselves. Well, I I appreciate the opportunity to to be here and actually, you know, to sing the song of my people. So it's great to be here with (laughs) with uh, fellow uh, nurse practitioners and think about, you know, what this means to our practice. So I'm a, a family nurse practitioner and professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Louisville in Kentucky. And my area of practice for about the last 30 years has been infection control and helping um, providers and uh, and any healthcare worker that is um, working with patients in, in any healthcare, in any setting where healthcare is delivered, uh, think about what infection control means and how to apply that in your daily activities. So uh, COVID-19 is a reminder that uh, this is important information and you need to be ready to use it. Um, as part of daily practice. Absolutely. And uh, Dr. Garrett, welcome. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. It's always good to be here with Ruth. We sort of tag team things all across the country together. Um, I actually work with Ruth at the University of Louisville as an adjunct assistant professor. Um, And my background is in infection prevention and control. Um, Do a lot with patient safety, vascular access, um, and most recently have sort of incorporated some healthcare quality work. And I, I, like Ruth, I think that today's times for the nurse practitioner are extremely important. And as a family nurse practitioner myself, it's it's something that I think we can excel at in building these basic practices for infection control so that regardless of what that pathogen, that pandemic of the future is, we're always standing ready to take care of our patients as well as ourselves. 
Absolutely. And and I've read both of your CVs. They're so impressive. And I can't think of any uh, greater experts than the, than the two of you to be joining us today to discuss this. So let's jump right into COVID-19. Let's, let's talk about what's going on with the virus. Um, this is something that you've both been dealing with on a daily basis. And, and I'm sure right now your expertise has been in great demand. So tell us, what do we know about COVID? Gosh, you know, we know that this is a very clever but very ferocious virus. We have a distinct respect for for all pathogens, but when we have one that emerges that immediately is able to create such an impact in the health and wellness, not only of patients, but I think that it's important for us to recognize the reality that all over the world we have healthcare workers who are becoming ill Uh, many on ventilators, some have not survived. So this is the real deal. This is a very important pathogen for us to understand. And it also is important that we think about the very aspects, the the basic elements of of, uh, infection prevention and control that are at play here. The aspects of understanding how long a a pathogen survives uh, in the environment, understanding how it is transmitted, helps us then understand how we can do the work that our patients trust us to do. You know, it's a reminder that, you know, that the general public says nurses in general are the most trusted of all professions. So they are depending on us to get ahead of this, uh, depending on us to understand how to protect ourselves and how to protect them. What do you think, Hudson? Well, you know, I go back to sort of three caveats with this that will build upon what you said. We don't have previous exposure or immunity. We don't have a vaccine and we don't have any real therapeutic options that have a long history of success. And so that's something that can cause fear to both our NP community, but also our patients. And as we approach, and I think this is one of the things, Sophia, that'll be great to talk about at the end, is as we approach the sort of vaccine development um, of the things that we can do to sort of build that herd immunity and also build um, immunity within our communities, that's going to be an area where NPs especially have unique expertise to educate patients and also make sure that we're keeping ourselves safe. Absolutely. You know, AANP recently did a survey of NPs, and we did one in May, and then we did a follow-up survey. In May, about 2% of NPs reported um, testing positive for COVID-19. In our most recent survey, actually 5% responded that they were infected some point during the pandemic. So we're having more and more healthcare providers uh, Uh, getting infected. And, you know, we usually believe that we practice good infection control measures, but obviously things happen. Um, And certainly with COVID-19, we're we're seeing that. So let's talk a little bit about transmissibility and and survivability. Can we can we get into that a little bit? Sure, sure. Well, I think, you know, you you mentioned that healthcare workers the you know, some of the healthcare workers have reported about 5% um, have had previous infection. I think some of the the studies that we are reading now is that it we're looking at probably twelve percent and even more. So we know healthcare workers, um, regardless of what your job involves, are at risk because this is an organism that is transmitted via the respiratory route, and we all breathe. So all of us are impacted by that, and this is why our our recognition of patients or individuals in the community that may be infectious um, and implementing then measures that are going to prote- protect us, not only from, from direct inhalation, but having uh, someone cough or project those respiratory particles into our face. You know, we oftentimes forget that our eyes are very efficient transmitters. 
And so this is one reason why when you look at all of the guidance, it'll say not only protect yourself from uh, particles going into your mouth or on your nose or if you're close enough to directly inhale, but protect your eyes. So we need to make sure that there is then that, that connection between how these particles are projected from someone who is infectious and how then we need to protect the individual, the healthcare worker that is within that close proximity. How do we help them protect themselves? And then also recognize when someone is projecting these particles, those that drop out of the air are gonna land on a surface. So if you touch a surface and then bring your hands back to your face, your eyes, your nose, your mouth, you are enabling then that transfer of microorganisms from the surface directly to you or that, that auto inoculation. This is why environmental disinfection and hand hygiene really make up that kind of triad of preventive approaches, personal protective equipment, hand hygiene, environmental disinfection, because we are recognizing that we have a significant number of individuals who are asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic. So we can't rely on kind of our, our old-fashioned thought of, I'll recognize who's sick. Now we're back to that whole notion that we that we recognized with the HIV epidemic. And that is we have to practice this standard approach or standard precautions and consider every patient as um, someone that can transmit to us. And that's really, I think, right now, more than ever, we're, it's really uh, shining a light on the fact that, yes, people who appear to be perfectly healthy can actually have a disease and um, transmit it to others. This is really illustrating what we've always heard about that, you know, the prodromal period and things like that, and certainly the asymptomatic carriers. Um, so what about, let's talk a little bit about the, the I know the data has been changing, the information's been changing, but the survivability of the virus on certain surfaces, I've heard that it survives for a certain amount of time on steel versus cardboard. Um, what's the latest on that information? It really depends on the type of surface. So when you think about I think let's walk through an example of what will be traditionally faced by our NP colleagues. So let's say that you're in a primary care clinic and you go into work for the day, right? So let's just sort of walk through our day. So we come in and we've got all the surfaces. We're going to touch doorknobs. We're going to touch keyboards. We're going to maybe open up the exam room. Maybe we're going to touch our stethoscope, log into our computer, all those basic things. My advice is to start with sort of breaking that survivability chain up front. So I'm gonna disinfect those high touch surfaces. And, and when you look at the data, the survivability can be up to a few days, um, depending upon what sort of the environmental factors are and the type of surfaces. Now, as we go through our day, so let's say we go see a patient and we're in that exam room and that patient leaves and hopefully we're gonna do a nice uh, you know, uh, cleaning of that area uh, between those patients. And then for the at the end of the day, we wanna make sure that we don't take anything home to our families. So I, I think Ruth would probably agree with this, but for example, when I'm working, I, I'm doing a lot of critical care transport with our COVID team, and we take off our all of our clothing that we will wear at the end of that day, at the end of that shift, and we don't take that home. Um, that is all laundered and, and we have some practices there. The other thing to think about too is that we may wear all of the right PPE, but if we remove it incorrectly and we contaminate ourselves, there's that risk too. So even though we're wearing that respirator mask or maybe we're wearing that gown, or that eye protection like Ruth mentioned, it's equally as important to put it on. It's also important to take it off correctly so that we minimize the contamination. But I think the great news for our community is that this virus is very easy to inactivate on surfaces. It's not hard to kill at all. Rubbing alcohol will kill it. 
And so the majority of the things that we may be using, whether it's in a hospital, a, a clinic, or an urgent care, the disinfectants we have are going to be very, very effective against this virus. So since we're talking about our offices, Ruth, what's the best way that we can disinfect all the surfaces in our office? What products would you recommend for nurse practitioners? So I think there are a number of products that can be used, but the big thing is you should use what you routinely used before COVID-19. That although I, I talked about how ferocious this virus is inside the body and the havoc that it wreaks for someone that, that is uh, uh, infected, once it's outside the body, it's easy to kill. It's like a little mouse, so very easy to, to kill. So use the germicides that you have always used. Just make sure that you're stopping to say, all right, am I applying it correctly? Am I letting it sit, that dwell time or that contact time? You know, we want to make sure that that people don't go into overkill. They're... You know, there isn't anything that you need to do over what you should have always been doing for routine environmental disinfection. Uh, now we just may be confronted with what can we find. Some of the products uh, that we have used in the past may be a little bit more uh, difficult to obtain because, you know, think of us now. We have 7 billion people on the planet. Now we have 7 billion people that are worried about environmental disinfection. So it's really been a challenge for uh, companies to actually have the the uh, supply that we have had in the past, the same sort of things that we are struggling with uh, regarding PPE. If I was going to add something to think about it in terms of sort of a three tier strategy, you've got sort of everything's hunky dory and, and we've got adequate supply and we can use our normal product, as Ruth mentioned. You know, then if you think back to like January, February, we sort of edged over into that next level, that next tier, if you will, of we're starting to get a little concerned because we're having issues even obtaining product, but we're still getting stuff. And where we are right now, sort of, um, unfortunately, is that crisis mode. And so when you think about that nurse practitioner interaction, right, you may have to be involved in the ordering of products or decide what is an acceptable substitute. And I think Ruth's guidance about stick with the formulation that you've used before is great. But I will tell you from experience with this that the most widely available chemicals right now are liquid bleaches because they are easy to make and you can buy those even at like local gardening stores and places like um, Home Depot and Lowe's. And so you may think about it in terms of this ready to use products as sort of tier one and then a ready to use spray as tier two. And, you know, sort of that last line of defense is a dilutable uh, liquid solution that you can mix in the clinic. And it's important to throw those solutions out every day. Um, so that they don't become degraded and also ensure they're labeled so that we're compliant with OSHA. And when using bleach, is it something that you can, uh, do you use it directly or is that something you would combine with water in a certain ratio? Yeah, so you can make a one to 10 dilution of bleach and still be compliant with both OSHA bloodborne pathogen standard, but also uh, highly effective against coronaviruses. Okay, that's important to know because as we're trying to be conservative on our supplies, uh, we want to we don't want to waste product unnecessarily. Um, so when we're talking about infection control and, and protecting healthcare workers, um, you know we've had a shortage of, for example, let's just use masks as an example. We're having to reuse masks, and the CDC guidance has changed now from what we traditionally learned in school on the proper way to use our PPE. Can you talk about how the CDC guidance has changed and, and what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, I think it's always interesting. You know, the CDC is responsible for bringing to um, healthcare workers and the general public information that is based upon the evidence. 
So we, and I think it's critical that we remember, we have been dealing with this SARS coronavirus 2 since January. And this is not very many months to have learned what we have learned. So uh, we will see those guidelines. If somebody goes to the CDC website, you may say, why, wow, why is it different this week than what it was last week? It's because we've learned a lot in the course of that week. So just as a caveat, it's very important for, for all of our providers to realize that this is the go-to place for information. But the reason that you're not seeing a lot of it in paper publication is because it changes. So go back to the website. Now, information about personal protective equipment and what we should be wearing and how we're dealing with the variable supply chain uh, is an important aspect. And, and you'll see a lot of this information. For example, we'll see uh, information about N95 respirators. You know, whenever we there is opportunity for direct inhalation of this virus, like through aerosol generating procedures, then we should be wearing an N95 respirator. Well, everybody wants N95 respirators all over the world. So we have a shortage of those. So you may see that we have different types of products that are labeled as a respirator hit the market. Uh, some of these are gonna be real and some are gonna be counterfeit. So I would always suggest that you go back to the CDC website and they will have lists of products that are counterfeit. That means they do not meet any industry standard for safety. And I would strongly recommend that you not use those for that, that respirator purpose. You can also find items that are made in other countries that may meet the, the criteria for that country, but are going to be problematic for us. It may be difficult to fit test, for example, a respirator produced in another country. So that's the situation where we are, where we're trying to have a high quality product and then decontaminate it so we may be able to reuse it. So there are a number of decontamination strategies that are again outlined on the CDC website, uh, whether it is uh, using UV radiation or uh, hydrogen peroxide uh, decontamination. Um, those are methods that we are continuing to learn more about and you will see some of those recommendations changing. This is why we're also saying now at the same time, protect yourself uh, with what you are routinely wearing. So the, the idea of, of wearing a face shield as a way to protect the respiratory protection or the mask that you're wearing uh, from direct contamination so you can wear it longer and perhaps then reuse it without fear of, of self-inoculation or self-contamination. And Dr. Garrett, let's talk a, a little bit more about PPE in general. You know, most nurse practitioners practice in the outpatient setting. And uh, I've heard a lot of uh, talk, um, am I supposed to wear a gown every time I see a patient now? We're supposed to assume all patients have COVID. So can you speak a little bit to what the average nurse practitioner practicing in the outpatient setting should be doing? And then I'd also like to talk about our offices and and what we need to be doing about bringing patients in and separating patients. Yeah, I would say, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time in the ER lately and I, I found exactly what you mentioned, Sophia, that many of the practitioners, especially the physicians I found, are, are actually wearing gowns the entire shift. Um, and and I, I think we need to be somewhat sympathetic of thinking why that practice is occurring, right? And, and as Ruth mentioned, I think she said one of the most important things that we need to talk about in this podcast, which is make sure you protect yourself. Right. And protecting yourself right now really looks at respiratory and eye protection in my mind. 
And so do you ask, do I wear eye protection and respiratory protection with every patient? My answer is yes, I do. Um, and I, I've always worn eye protection when I wore respiratory protection. And so I think that's one of the first misses that we want to focus on is an opportunity to say that we want to do that. Um, you know, as it relates to sort of that um, coverage of our bodies, unless that patient is suspected either under investigation or is, you know, a confirmed or very highly problematic patient, um, then that's when I'm going to put on the gown. And we need to go back to those good conservation practices. So I'm going to wash my hands well. I'm going to disinfect my surfaces. I'm not going to touch the patient, um, obviously, unless it's needed for the purposes of exam. I'm going to remove my gloves correctly. Those are all practices that we should always be doing. And, and I think to sort of the second part of your question in that outpatient setting, the first thing that we need to do is think about where does that patient flow start? And that starts sort of at that front desk, that check-in process, and have a really good thorough screening. What I find, unfortunately, especially in hospitals and clinics, is that most people are screening via a temperature. And that's the only screening that's taking place, and that's not sufficient. And so not only do we want to ask about the symptoms, and we should go through those symptoms individually, but we should also ask about risk of exposure. And I'll give you an example, and I'll pick on myself. So I went into a nursing home to take a critical patient out that actually had COVID. And I went in, and they asked me to have my temperature checked, and I did. And then they, they asked me about some symptoms and I got to the question of, have you been exposed to anyone with known or suspected COVID? And I checked, yes. And I made the mistake of putting lots next to it. And it freaked out the, the nursing staff. And so we had to have a conversation about my role and everything. And, and so I, I think that we wanna be very you know, cautious. As Ruth mentioned, this is a virus that deserves our respect, but we also don't wanna swing the pendulum and walk in like dark vader on every single patient if that makes sense so using those good common sense approaches good screening and and really good distancing from our patients when at all possible that's going to really help us con you know conserve our ppe and keep ourselves safe i think hudson you know one of the the things that kind of plays right into that is the importance of critical thinking skills and not only critical thinking skills on the part of the nurse practitioner, but remember the nurse practitioner is going to help then direct the activities of all the people in his or her practice. So, and that instilling confidence in the ability to make a reasonable decision, because our role also is protecting ourselves, seeing our patients, but also we know the value of all of the personnel in our, in our office setting that we need them to feel confident when, when they come to work. So we need to make sure that they realize about how this disease is transmitted and then bringing in some of those, uh, those um, ideal uh, pieces of equipment in the, the office environment, things like you know that, that big piece of plexiglass that may separate you from the, the individual at check-in. So you can begin to have those conversations with your staff to say, okay, here's how this disease is transmitted. Let's think about some of the things that are important to your daily practice and then make those available. And I think you're entirely correct that, you know, a if we have a nurse practitioner that walks around in head-to-toe coverage all day long, what is the message that sends to their staff? That's the first thing. And the second thing is, realistically, if I think you're wearing all of that and you're not going to be hot and that's not going to mean that your hands are going to your face to kind of push things out of your out of your face or maybe even wipe the sweat, you know, from your your own face. That is an opportunity for auto inoculation. So, it's a reminder that, you know, too much is is bad. 
just right, that's what we're trying to, to achieve. What is the just right, just enough approach uh, to make this practical and make this happen? Yeah. And, and, you know, I think it's what's so difficult for, I know many of the colleagues that I've spoken with, a lot of nurse practitioners hug their patients and we, we, we haven't been able to do that and we need to change those practices. And, and so you're saying as infection control experts, now we should really consider wearing eye protection and masks with every patient encounter. I think that should be an absolute, be especially now. And and think about this, you know, how are we doing? This is almost like our dry run for the fall with influenza season. And seriously, we probably should have been doing this all along for influenza. You know, in the hospitals, uh, you will see signs up all over the place regarding, you know, respiratory isolation or whatever. But we have always talked about standard precautions. And when I teach groups, whether I'm teaching nurses or medical students or whomever, I say it, you know, the issue is standard precautions is if it's wet and not yours, don't don't let it get on you. And so if I've got a patient with in the hospital that has a respiratory illness, they are coughing. If I walk in that room and they cough in my face, I'm getting that on me, right? It's either going to go on my face, in my eyes, and so why am I not protecting myself? So standard precautions should be, if we if we have a patient that we know has opportunity to transmit this via a respiratory route, why are we not protecting ourselves? And I think if you ask any nurse practitioner and we say, okay, here's a disease that if the patient coughs in your face or if they are talking and you get close enough so they can project this directly in your face, and it may cause you to become so ill that you have to be hospitalized and may require a ventilator and may not survive. But one of the things that can protect you is if you wear a mask and eye protection. How many nurse practitioners are going to say, I don't think I want to do that? I don't exactly. think there are very many. I think what we have failed to do is we have failed to get the direct message out to say, let me break it down and make it, make, make it perfectly clear because the infection control practices that you developed in addressing HIV were not precise enough. Now, precision infection control may mean the difference between your safety and your personal illness. So now's the time to be laser focused and pinpoint in our practice because it's self-protection and realize that there are what, about 300,000 of us across the United States what happens if a proportion of us become ill? How are we going to continue to then meet the responsibilities that we have, not only professionally, but we're part of this critical infrastructure. So if we get sick, this is a terrible issue uh, for society to confront. Well, I was going to say, too, what about, you know, and I'm sort of coming up with this verbiage as we're talking here, which is kind of funny. But what about instead of PPE, we even think about a concept for the nurse practitioner of APE assignable protective equipment. And I guess what I mean by that is, you know, we are in a world right now where the disposable market has collapsed. Um, we cannot get, you know, N95 respirators, as Ruth mentioned. In many cases, we're just now getting access to face shields. And so for my own practice, for example, I invested in my own respiratory protection and my own uh, face shield, and they're all reusable. So I have a reusable elastomeric respirator. I have my own safety glasses. I have my own reusable face shield. And all of that equipment has lasted through hundreds of disinfections um, since February. 
And, you know, if I think about the majority of our membership that is in those outpatient settings where the infrastructure is different, right? They don't have access to that infection preventionist. They don't have access to all of this respiratory protection. They most likely have surgical type masks, but it's pretty rare that you're going to find a clinic that's going to be well stocked with other types of protection. And so that might be something for us to look at as sort of a, you know, advocacy health policy thing to say, how do we make sure that we have that sustainable um, sort of resource, if you will, because what scares me so much about this pandemic and what could come from it is how many health diagnoses are waiting to be diagnosed? How many chronic conditions are not being properly managed? How many people are not going to the emergency department because they're scared to get treatment for their STEMI? And, and we're seeing this data start to sort of incrementally come out of CDC with these other health conditions. And so if we have a way to guarantee our protection and that of our colleagues, that is going to be a massive marker in moving in the right direction to ensure the continuity of care that we can provide. It's funny that you mentioned that, Hudson, because what you're saying is that whose responsibility is my safety? My, my safety is my responsibility. It doesn't matter whether it's my practice or whether I'm employed by someone else. So at what point do I decide I need to take charge of that and I need to make sure that I have what I need every day to protect myself so I can safely provide care for the patients whose life may depend on me. I agree. And, you know, I think that going beyond COVID, we'll be having flu season this fall. COVID is still going to be with us and COVID will be with us for a long time now. And so as we continue to practice, we, we're starting to encourage patients to come back into primary care because they've been missing those uh, screening uh, tests that are so important. And as you said, people are presenting in emergency rooms later now because they, they've uh, missed out on diseases and diagnoses that could have been picked up early, as well as children are missing out on their vaccines. Uh, there's a new campaign to get children caught up on their vaccines because they haven't been coming into primary care. So as we're encouraging people to come back to primary care, more and more people will be entering those outpatient offices. We want to certainly be sure that we're protected to be able to keep ourselves in the workforce because once the healthcare providers start going down and we're not able to provide care to patients, ultimately patient care goes down. And um, so it's so important. You know, you talked about, you know, the as people return to practice. So I, I think one of the very important issues is remembering that nurse practitioners provide care in rural settings all across the United States. And we are addressing many of the needs of those with distinct health disparities. So if we're not on the job, then we have the very people who are being impacted the, to the greatest degree by COVID. It's those who have underlying health conditions, those that live in poverty, those that don't have anybody else to provide care for them. We've got to be considering that. And so when we think about protective approaches, we're not only protecting ourselves, we are many times the singular voice and the singular care provider for those that uh, those people that have nothing else. So that makes it even more. And we need to feel this sense of urgency to take care of this problem and be in charge of this problem, be ahead of this wave in preparation. 
Absolutely. You know, we uh, at AAMP recently, we released a statement on health disparities and social determinants of health, and, and it affects people in rural areas as well as um, urban and suburban areas. And oftentimes, nurse practitioners are the advocates and the patient voice, um, and we spend extra time with those patients, educating them, teaching them about their disease and diagnosis. And certainly, as we're going to be spending more time with our patients to be sure they understand their disease, we uh, again, we want to be sure that we're protected. Uh, you said something earlier, Ruth, that made me think about, um, you know, talking to our patients. Um, you know, many times I find myself when I'm with a patient, a lot of t- patients are coming in wearing those masks that have the valve on them. And um, could you speak a little bit about that? Because I think that's so important. A lot of people don't understand about those those valves. Yeah, I don't know. Hudson and I have talked a lot about this. So Hudson, I'm going to uh, say a couple things and I want to defer to you to kind of continue the the sermon. I'll tell him, you know, it's it's almost like I get on a pulpit when I talk about respirators and I feel the spirit move me and, and I'm sort of feeling <laughs> the spirit move me because I think, you know, the idea is everybody wants to do what they think is right and they're trying to figure out how to make decisions, but you've got to have a level of knowledge of kind of the theory behind all this, or you make a wrong decision. And this is an exact a great example that when you wear any type of respirator or that even the, the masks that we're seeing or the face cloths that we're seeing that are being produced that have that little exhalation valve, you know, remember the reason that we are wearing universal masking or those face coverings out in public is on the assumption that I am infected. I'm an asymptomatic carrier, so I'm trying to protect you from me. But with that little exhalation valve, the purpose is for me not to get so hot inside my my mask or my respirator, so that pops open as I exhale. And that, you know, we we all learned a little physics in in school, and, and that is, you know, the smaller the diameter, the greater the force. So we've got this little bitty exhalation valve that is smaller than our mouth, and so when it pops open and we exhale, we've got a pretty good amount of force now that's going to come out. So if I am an asymptomatic carrier, I now have an easy way for me to project this virus out my exhalation valve and to contaminate those around me or those surfaces. Fortunately, most of the time it's pointed down. Um, but when I'm thinking down is where the surfaces are, down is where little children are for me to to contaminate and so, Hudson, I know you'll you'll probably have some things you'd like to add to this uh, because I know we both feel very strongly about this. I mean, I refer to them jokingly as infectious uh, tributaries, right, <laughs> that are going to infect the, the water supply. Um, but, you know, I go back to sort of a correlation with the airline industry. The airline industry universally in the United States has banned those types of masks. We need to do something similar to that in healthcare and really educate the public that, yes, universal masking is a great thing. Right. But universal masking is only as effective as you mentioned, Ruth, if we have a sort of a source control. Right. And those valves, as comfortable as they make it, especially in the heat of the summer that we're in right now, are are really infectious tributaries. And, and that goes for us as well, because many employers and I think this sort of gets to a very sticky situation, are not able to provide the PPE that we should all be um, you know, accustomed to. And so employees are going to be encouraged to bring their own PPE. And that can create a whole host of issues. And so if you're wearing a, a mask with a, you know, a filtering device like that, that's got an exhalation port, that's not a good thing for our patients. And it's not a good thing for, for us. I agree. And, and let, let's go back a little bit. I want to talk about infection control overall before COVID-19 and after COVID-19. 
Um, you know, we've talked about a lot of the PPE measures and, and a lot of these concerns, but, you know, before COVID-19, we had a lot of concerns about respiratory infections. Flu season came around every year and it kind of came and went. And if you caught the flu, you caught the flu. And, and But I think there's been a more of an appreciation now about respiratory infections and how they're transmitted, even in the lay public. I think there's an awareness. And, and so I'm looking now at flu season coming around and I'm almost, I'm hopeful that pe- more people will be wearing their masks and we'll actually have lower numbers of flu um, because people will be wearing those masks. But, you know, let's, I want to take a look at before COVID and, and after COVID. And what do you see as the biggest um, contrast in the two time periods? Do you think it's just been an awareness in the general public and the healthcare um, population in general? Um, I would say that, you know, I sort of jokingly say pre-COVID and post-COVID, and I would like to get to post-COVID very soon. Um, and and I hope that post-COVID will be a, a, a awakening of awareness related to basic infection control practices and what our obligations are. And frankly, also, I think it's great that the community is sort of going through this with healthcare um, because it's an opportunity for us to come together and say, how do we keep each other safe? How do we make sure that when you come into the office, you're safe and that we're doing the necessary things? But frankly, I, I sort of go back to three common sources of infection transmission and not everything fits in the bucket, but most things do. So let's just take influence as an example. There's you know possible ways that it can be transmitted and sort of my three buckets that I think about in general are contaminated hands, right? Our 10 deadly weapons that we have are our fingers. Uh, I mean, that's also for our patients as well. The second, which Ruth talked about earlier, is that sort of contaminated clinical environment of care, those environmental surfaces. And last, we need to think about, too, especially for our hospitalized patients, is contaminated skin of the patient. And so our skin is our most natural barrier for infection prevention when intact. But so much of what we do in healthcare, whether it's simple venipuncture, uh, IV insertion, uh, chest tubes, whatever it may be, makes artificial breaks in the skin. And so when I think about like influenza as an example, primarily a respiratory droplet um, can be transmitted via surfaces as well as hands. MRSA is another example that comes to mind that can be transmitted with hand surfaces and the skin, right? So if we think about that and apply that to our work as NPs, really focus on those three things and get those three things really hardwired in our practice, whether you're in primary care, urgent care, hospital, it doesn't matter. And then these core practices that we're talking about today, I'm pretty confident, Ruth may agree or disagree, that if we do these things as a profession, we can really get a great handle on most infection transmissions. And it's so simple to do these things. These are all economical. They're easy to do. And frankly, I think it's it's something that we need to sort of be the leaders and the stewards of, but encourage medical assistants, our nursing colleagues, our physician colleagues, our pharmacists that we work with, every single person in this chain plays a role. Yeah, you know, I, I agree, Hudson, that, you know, and I tend to think of it as, you know, BC is before COVID, AC is after COVID. You know, BC before COVID, you know, it was, it was just um, puzzling to me why we still continue to have re- uh, audits of hand hygiene performance. We were still, you know, people would say, oh, yeah, we're 90% you know, in public, and then it's like, well, no, really, we're, we're nowhere near that. And we all know that, you know, we know that hand hygiene uh, just occurred very sporadically and um, standardization of approaches was, was not present. Uh, that's what we did before. 
Um, you know, my my hope was that great with COVID, the silver lining in COVID would be that we would see an improvement in basic infection prevention and control practices, and the result would be that we would begin to see other healthcare associated infections decreasing. But I've been reading articles lately that are saying that's actually not what is happening. So it's telling me that that basic practices are not hardwired, that that there is something still that is preventing um, healthcare workers and others from uh, performing adequately. So you know, if if something doesn't happen, and you know, and I've used this as I've raised my 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 kids, you know, if something doesn't happen, there are two reasons: either they can't or they won't. So like, you know, with my son, you know, if the grass needs to be cut, you know, it wasn't that he couldn't, it's just that he didn't, you know, most times. <laughs> well, the same thing with healthcare workers. If somebody is not performing hand hygiene, either they can't or they won't. I don't I don't think that we have people that purposefully do not perform hand hygiene. Therefore, I think that our systems are not designed to enable them to do the right thing every time. So it's our our opportunity to look at how care is provided. And think of things like, okay, if I don't want the patients coughing into the face of my front office staff, then what do I need to do to keep that from happening? If I want to make sure that everyone is using personal protective equipment, whatever that may be, respiratory, a mask, or a face covering, how do I make sure that that happens every time? So we begin to look at this differently. Instead of sitting back and wringing our hands at why things didn't happen, we now need to be in charge and figure out then how do we uh, ensure that we have systems and processes in place that are not only valid, but they are sustainable and they are reliably sustainable. We're, we're having to change our approach, our perspective. And that means that we have to recognize those basic practices, just as you said, you know, that the performance of hand hygiene, the environmental disinfection, and the ability to use and wear personal protective equipment when it's important um, and when it is impactful. And so no longer wishing infection control happened is going to be good enough. Making sure it happens needs to be the, the deal of the day. And common sense approaches, obviously, with all of that. Sure, sure. Well, our time is winding down, but we've got a lot more to talk about here. So we're going to continue this conversation with Dr. Carrico and Dr. Garrett in a part two of this episode. It's available right now on your favorite podcast platform. In line with this discussion of infectious disease, there are some great resources I'd like to make sure you're taking advantage of. The AANP website has the latest clinical and policy information related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Visit aanp.org forward slash COVID-19 for information and resources that are updated daily, Monday through Friday. The AANP Connect online conference is happening right now and going on through the end of the year. Even though COVID is keeping us physically apart this year, you can still get a virtual conference experience, participate in more than 60 sessions, and earn up to 72 hours of continuing education. Please visit aanp.org forward slash aanpconnect to learn more. And of course, if you're not currently an AANP member, consider joining not only to support the NP role, but also to access great member benefits like free continuing education, 
networking and professional development opportunities, and so much more. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share it with your colleagues, and check back each month for new conversations with nurse practitioners and healthcare leaders from across the nation. And as always, be kind, be safe, and be the voice of the nurse practitioner. Thank <laughs> you.